Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, good morning, Mosaic fam. It's good to be back together. Uh, This is a perfect time if you maybe have been away for a while or, you know, you've just been snowed in or whatever it's been, perfect time to jump in to what we're doing. We are starting an eight-week series on the book of Daniel. And if you are newer to Bible reading or maybe you've never really explored or really dug into this book, this is going to be a great time for you because this is a really confusing book. And so I'm really confused. I'm going to try to make it less confusing But this is a time that we have to dig into uh, Scripture that sometimes we shy away from because there's so much complexity inside of this one book. You're going to see stories that seem ridiculously like impossible, and we're going to see a young man have these dreams and interpret dreams. It's going to be all over the place. And it's going to be, what is the purpose of this book? But there's so much richness here that the next eight weeks, I... I can guarantee that you're going to walk away uh, knowing more, not only about this book, but saying, how can I take what I've learned and be a disciple maker? That's the key to everything here, because in our culture, Western culture, we believe the more we know, the more spiritual we are. If I know a lot, therefore I am spiritual. But that's that's our culture. The culture of Eastern culture, in which the book was written and our scriptures come from, is knowledge moves to action. So as we dig into eight weeks, here's my challenge for us as a fan. You're going to hear, hopefully engage a lot. Be transformed by the hearing of the word that therefore moves to action in your life. How can you transform our community with the hope that we have through the book of Daniel that we see God working in all of us? So we're going to go right back to the basics. Again, I don't want to assume that you know anything. The book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. The Bible is split into two segments, if you will. <clears throat> the older segment, called the Old Testament, is everything that's happening before Jesus returns. <clears throat> Excuse me, before Jesus returns. So we have the Old Testament. We have in this a collection of books with a lot of different genres, and we're going to talk about that in a second. The New Testament now is when Jesus comes onto the scene. And now with this New Testament, we're seeing not only the story of Jesus, But we're also seeing letters written about how to live, what does it look like to follow Jesus, as well as some other types of books that are in there. So Daniel's part of the Old Testament, which was sacred books to the Jewish people. Um, These books, as they are brought together, the first five books of the Bible were called Torah, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were a very important piece, and those are the books that were written by Moses, And the Jewish people then lived by these. This was the how do we live and what is the story of God, first five books of the Bible. So if you have any Sunday school experience, you'd say, hey, I remember stories of Noah's Ark. I remember stories. Maybe you've heard of Daniel. Uh, That's not part of the Torah, but you've heard of that story. Maybe you've heard some stories in your Sunday school time that kind of stick out. Now, in my day, I'm from the 80s, which meant when I went to Sunday school, we had something called flannel grams. (laughs) Yeah, if you know, you know, right? So Sunday school in the 80s had flannel grams, and flannel grams was this large, huge board with literally made of flannel. And then the Sunday school teacher would have little flannel 
people and they would tell these Bible stories and they would stick little people on there. So like, okay, so David was a shepherd and then they'd put the flannel shepherd up there and they put a couple of flannel sheep and boy, did it keep my attention. Could you imagine us doing that nowadays? So if you have any of those stories back there, Daniel was one of those key stories because Daniel has multiple stories where you tip your head and say, how is this real? This doesn't seem possible. So Daniel is full of unbelievably awesome stories. But to understand Daniel, I'm going to take another step back for you to explain genres. Inside of the Bible, we don't have one book that's all one type of story. We have multiple genres. In fact, there's about seven or eight. There's different disagreements about exactly what they are. But inside of the Bible, you have different styles of book. And why this is important, it depends on how you're going to interpret and read that book. So the narrative uh, is a type of <clears throat> genre. A narrative is a uh, storytelling, if you will. I'm telling a story. Um, I'm telling what's been going on. Uh, the law is a type of genre. This is God's command, so he makes it very clear how to live. Poetry is a type of genre. We understand poetry in our language. The Bible has poetry. There's wisdom, or this is like a big collection of different topics that are to give you information or what's a good way to live your life. They are wise. There's prophecy. When God is speaking to his people, and as he's speaking to his people, he's either warning them or encouraging them. He's saying something is coming, so either change the way you're living, or I want to encourage you. This is God speaking through humans to a, to a group of people. The Gospels. We've heard a lot about that if you are in the Mosaic family. These are the collections of books that are going to put together the story of Jesus. When Jesus came in, what was his message? What were the things he said? Where did he go? Those are uh, the Gospels. They have a narrative feel, but we book them by themselves because it's so Jesus-focused. The epistles are letters that are written. The epistles are letters written to a specific group of people about a specific topic in a specific time. So most of the epistles that we know of are written by the Apostle Paul. Our last series was Praying with Paul. And these epistles are very specific. And this is important to know in a genre because he's writing to a church, just like he'd be writing to us. Hey, Mosaic, you've got some problems. Let me tell you what your problems are. He's writing a letter to a group of people on purpose with what they are going through at that time. So we have to interpret it and read it through that lens. Finally, is apocalyptic or apocalypse-type genre. They're urgent messages. They're to an original audience. And this is usually a warning, again, or comfort. But this is something that's full of symbolic language. There's a lot of analogies, a lot of, uh, it looks like this, and they're trying to describe something. We're going to talk about beasts with eyes and wings, and you did not put that on a flannel gram because it would have scared us all some of these analogies and these stories and this vividry, but it is all explaining something to us and for us to read and understand it. Daniel is an apocalyptic book, but it reads like a narrative. Now, this is why I'm telling you this. We're going to dig into this, and it's going to get real confusing really fast because we're going to start in, oh, we're telling the story of Daniel. Makes sense. Then all of a sudden, everything seems to kind of shift and all of a sudden, there's these dreams and interpretations and beasts and all these things happening. What in the world is God doing, and why do we have this book today? Understanding that there's two general genres based inside of a book is going to help us read it well. So 
if you're newer to Bible reading and you've ever heard somebody misquote Scripture to you, they use a ver- like a verse or something totally out of context, most often it comes from one. First, terrible use of the Bible, so that's one. Two, is this the correct genre? Because understanding genre is important. If it's a narrative and it's telling a story, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. This is me to understand God's story. It's not telling me necessarily to do something. So because if I read Noah's Ark and the story of God, and he tells Noah to build an ark because sin was so terrible throughout the entire earth, he's going to flood the entire earth because that's how terrible sin had become. It, we had no return at that point. And so Noah builds an ark. And the ark comes and his family's saved. He gets off the boat. And sin continues with them, hence why we're still full of a mess. If I take that as a narrative, I'm learning and understanding, looking it through a perspective of I have to understand the story and what is God telling me. If I take it as prescriptive, I'm now outside building a boat because God's going to flood the earth. And even though he promised that he wouldn't do it, if it's prescriptive, it's something I'm supposed to do to get away from sin. If it's descriptive, I'm understanding the story to say, okay, God, what are you saying about who you are? Does that make sense? So we're going to be in a book that has this huge narrative form that's going to move into an apocalyptic form back to a narrative form. So there's a video that I have here I want you guys to watch. This is from the Bible Project. Uh, If you are not familiar with the Bible Project, fantastic nonprofit that helps make Bible reading not only understandable, but it's kind of cool and fun. It takes some really hard concepts and brings them together. And this video, it's a little bit long, so stick with it and dial in the best you can because you are going to learn a ton about the book of Daniel. And as you learn about this, it's all going to make sense as we start to unwrap and start to dig into this amazing book. So here, check out this video. The story said right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, when they had plundered the city and its temple, taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David. Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and it puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. 
After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted. They're thrown into a fiery furnace. But God delivers them from death, and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a god, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts. And like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast identified as a really evil empire, and it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience. 
that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John the visionary who wrote the Revelation could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. So did you get all that? <laughs> the big idea that we're going to be exploring here is that for all generations, that this should inspire us to faithfulness. That the big idea as we start to dig into chapter one today is I want you to sit back and start to now we're going to glean it. Remember, we got eight weeks of this. We're going to be getting now into each of the chapters and looking at to what does this mean in reality. It's, if you know anything about human history, kingdoms come and kingdoms fall over and over and over again. And one of the things we know about God and his people 
is God does not have any place for any kingdom that thinks that they're better than God himself. That any time a kingdom rises, and he actually uses kingdoms to put judgment on his own people, when a kingdom rises, if you think that you are greater than God, you will not last and you will be destroyed. I can imagine during Jesus' time when the Roman Empire ruled most of the area that, that they really believed like they were going to last forever. And th there is no Roman Empire. It's a place you go now and it's a city. It's no longer owning all of the Middle East. So an understanding of this as we dig into it is how can we find hope right now in our world when it feels like there's absolutely zero hope? When we are now still going through a pandemic, uh, politics are all over the place, our country is scattered, people are mad at each other. You guys know this, right? Social media is nonsensical. We are in every single direction, and it feels like, God, why are we losing? Why are we losing? Are we really losing, friends? Or is, do we need to be patient and call out to God Almighty and turn our lives back to him and trust the king of the universe. And that's where we're going to be digging into the Bible today. I'm going to have Dawn come up in a second and read chapter one. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them now. We're going to turn the lights on in the back for those who can read in the back or your Bible apps. We are not going to be putting uh, the verses up here because it's an entire chapter. and I've never do that to my tech team. But I do want you to read along. I want you to read for yourself. And Mosaic, we're going to be reading the NIV, uh, NIV version. There's lots of versions out there. But I also want to plug at this time the Bible app. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on your phone, Version. if you uh, search Version, amazing app that I use most of the time. Inside of Version, lots of different styles or versions of the church or of the Bible. But as well, there's devotionals. So if you're asking, how do I get into a daily devotional, Version, boom, it's right there. It's in your pocket. It's immediate. Uh, fantastic tool. Um, so as we go through this, each week we'll be reading chapters. If you didn't bring anything this week, I encourage you to look at that as we'll be doing this every week. So, Don? Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, he gives me all the good words, king of Judah into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of, ba of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. 
But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked to them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So what is the point of chapter one? Every vegan in here right now is like, yes, I told you not to eat meat. <laughs> what is going on? This is, this is how I like to approach uh, a Bible reading in my world. Now, I am a movie guy. I love movies. I love story. I've loved them my entire life. I like to put stories like this into movie form because we are so driven by media. It's a lot easier for us to picture something that's actually happening. Because when you read this, it feels very distant. It feels dusty. It feels like this really didn't happen. We, we kind of just feel very away from it. But when we put it into a movie form or a style of like, let's put ourselves in the story, we start to see actually what is happening. So Nebuchadnezzar comes with Babylon and they ransack and start blowing up everything. There's a huge war. So there's a war going on. There's a clanging of armor. There's swords swinging. And Babylon overtakes the area and overtakes the Jewish people. In there, they start to plunder everything. As they're taking all of their goods and their goodies, they take people. That's part of what they would do at that time. They would take people for slaves. They take people to work for the king. They take them for all different reasons. But they plundered everything. So they plunder they won, they go back to their kingdom. The king says this, I don't want the garbage. I want the best of the best. I want you to find me who's in like royal lineage in this land. Who are like the king's kids and the nobility and all the, the fancy people. I want those people. I want the best of the best of the best. Because these young men have been training since an early age to move into a place of leadership and government. I want them. So he starts by getting and gathering all these people and they start to look among who is the best of the best of the best. Inside of here, we see a new group of people come into the story. Daniel comes in with these 
young three other men. Now, there's going to be other men there. There's going to be other people. Now, remember, this is a real time in a real Middle Eastern culture. And so you're going to have all these men, but these four men start to stand up among all of the rest. The other men in the group, we don't know if there's other lands that were plundered during that time, but we're just going to put into the story we know that these were Hebrews at this time. So the room is full of Hebrew men. And these four men rise up among, above everybody else. We have Daniel, we have Hananiah, we have Mishael, and we have Azariah. Scholars say these young men are about 11 to 13 years old. So now put that into your story. They don't have beards. Every Bible movie you watch on TV, everybody has a beard. You do when you're grown up. These guys are like 11, 13 years old. And some feel that Daniel might have been around 20, a little bit older than the rest of the boys. But regardless, these are young men. Men in the Jewish culture weren't until the age of 13. So to be called young men is a differential of these were men. These were young men. So anywhere from 11 to 20, most likely, right in that teenage world. So let's go to our local middle school and pick the best of the best boys. I don't know about you, but at that age, you're still just trying to get them to take a shower with a bar of soap. These young men are taken from their land. They are, they are stolen, guys. This is not like uh, we walked in. They were stolen. They're there, and these four young men stand out. Imagine being in that vulnerable age. Age 11 to 13 is pretty impressionable. And if you remember, and we joke about this when I was in youth ministry, what a hard, terrible age to be a young man or a young woman. Like, everything is changing. Like, things are weird. I mean, who knows what's going on with them at that time? Their bodies, their feet are too big, and their arms are too long. They're going through all these changes, and it's a hard time. And they were just stolen out of their land, put into this foreign country, and now this king says, I like these four guys. But he doesn't just stop with that. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to wipe their past out. I don't want them to have their names, because they're not Hebrews anymore. Now they're Babylonians. So we're going to give them a new name. Daniel's not Daniel. He's Belshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to change these names because it's actually quite significant. This, in their culture, when you name something, you own something. So this Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, comes in and says, you are no longer what you were, you're mine. I own you. And not only do I own you, you're now part of what I want you to be. So they, he's literally wiping out their culture. He's wiping out their past. You weren't anything in the past. Now you're something, and these are your new names. Nebuchadnezzar, and this is an interesting uh, nerd fact for all of you guys, changes his name, Daniel's name, to Belshazzar. Uh, his name of Daniel means God is my judge. So the Hebrew name Daniel means God is my judge. Belshazzar means Bel's prince, and Bel was a god of Babylonia. So the Babylonian god Bel, he changes this Daniel, who he sees must be standing up among all of them. He says, God is my judge. No, no, no. You can be the prince of our god. So he is wiping out his religion. He is trying to wipe out his past. He's trying to wipe out his family. He's trying to wipe out his faith in Yahweh or our god. So in essence, you see this king of Babylon. He's like flaunting in God's face. I took all your people, and there's nothing you can do about it. I am the almighty king. 
And as you just saw in that video, this is not going to go well for him. But let him win right now. It's going to change. I am the almighty king. Yahweh is nothing to me. Your God is a fake God. Our God's reign. In fact, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, I am a God. You see, I own everything. So this is getting pretty intense, right? You're watching this movie. The popcorn's going a little bit quicker, right? You're not going to go to the bathroom or fill up your soda. This is getting good because you see this arrogant king just rising up and trying to just destroy everything. So that puts us in the main section of chapter one, the diet of these young men. So in this story, we see these young men come in and Daniel asked the question of this, would you please allow us eat to eat what God allows us to eat? We eat something different than the rest of you. We don't eat the way you eat. In fact, what you are eating is forbidden for us. We can't eat the foods that you're eating because our God has set us apart. Now, this is going to take you back in a movie scene. We're going to flash back into what he's talking about. In the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, back to Torah, we understand that there is a way of living for the Jewish people, which is a narrative written for their time, and it's law for them as well. This is how you live during this time for the season. And so as we flash back, there are foods that they are not supposed to eat. There are things they are not supposed to do. And if we remember our Ten Commandments a little bit, maybe remember them, there should be no other gods before me or the true God. And so they are looking at what God has commanded them to. King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to wipe out their entire past. And he said, would you please allow this? We can't eat this stuff. We are not allowed to eat. Would you allow us to eat? what we can eat. Now, there's a lot of questions about this. Did the Jewish people at the time only eat vegetables? Were they only vegans? The answer is no. There was a, multiple reasons why we believe they said, please don't make us eat this stuff. First of all, the royal food that they ate there was food most likely already, it was dedicated and brought before idols as a sacrifice. So they would sacrifice animals to their gods as well. And so the food that was brought into the royal court was different animals that were sacrificed before their god, maybe Bell being one of them. They had lots of different gods. And then that food would be cooked up and then given to the king and his court. And so this food that was dedicated to idols would have been unable to be eaten by the Jewish people. That's something they, were, they could not do. They had abstained from anything like that. So this food that was tainted could not be eaten. They would disrespect God if they were to eat it. Now we're going to flash forward in our story, because if, if you've read anything in the New Testament, Paul talks about eating food that's been given to idols. And he says, look, the big idea of that, guys, if, it, if food is food, right? So what God meant by that was for a sacred time in a sacred place, but you can have food. Food is food to God. It goes in the stomach, it comes out. Food is food. And so in the New Testament, things shift a little bit in the story. In this Old Testament here, they're holding to this for this time and this period. Cannot eat food dedicated to idols. Secondly, and this is a big one, Eastern culture meals were very, very important. I think we can relate to this as in our culture if I invite you to my home and we have a meal together, something intimate about that. You are in my home. We are talking together. You are, we're sharing a meal and there's relationship there. 
And food and culture, pretty much for all humans, is important. Eastern culture added a little bit more to it. In Eastern culture, it was a commitment or covenant of friendship and agreement. If I sit down and eat with you, that means that we are in one accord and that I, we are on the same page. We're on the same page with that. So just think about this. Every time you invited someone to your house, like, uh, okay, uh, would you please fill out my online survey real quick? Uh, would you please click your political party? And would you then please tell me uh, what religion you are and how you grew up and where you're from? And you have all these questions. And if you say, look, I'm not going to sit down and eat with anybody from, I don't know, you're from Franklin, Wisconsin? I don't hang out with those people. And so you have this list and you start to go through that relationship, that intimacy looks something like that, but then in their culture. So to sit down and have meal meant unity among them. So you've got two forces or dichotomies working here. One, if this food is food that they are not supposed to eat, and for them would have been anything from a pig, bacon, rabbits, camels, any fish that was finless, anything that had blood in it, leavened bread, all of these things they were to abstain from, they were not to eat. And so most likely there's those animals on the docket. We can't eat that. Secondly, I'm not going to sit down and, and have meals and relationship with a group of people who are telling me that Yahweh isn't real. So what we see from 11 and 13-year-olds are some of the most powerful believers in God right here in chapter 1. Think about the tension. Do you want to talk about peer pressure for a second? Because this request could have them killed. Literally, they could be just killed for even, who are you to question me, Nebuchadnezzar, the God among all gods, the greatest king of all time? I'm a big deal. How dare you question me and my food? Just kill them. There's more. We'll ransack somebody else. Kill these four boys. They're annoying anyways. They're always on their phone. They're never paying attention. Just kill them anyways. So they stand up because of their faith and their belief. So if you were taken right now out of this country, moved to another land, which was a country that says that Christianity and Christ is not real, and you are a slave to that group of people, would you stand up and say, I cannot disrespect God by what you're asking me to do? Is your faith that strong? These young men, it was. Which makes me sit back, and when I was working on this, I'm like, wow, that's an intense start of this story. And what we're building here is the character of these men, the character of who they are. Their faith and their trust in Yahweh is being all brought together for us. So it seems trivial. Just eat the food, man. God's going to understand. Look, you were stolen in the middle of the night by this crazy king who thinks he's God. You have every right to just eat the food. Just be quiet and just, you can still worship God, but just eat the food. It's not a big deal. I think it's not a big deal is American Christianity's straight pathway to hell. It is a big deal. And what I'm saying to you is this. We, it's not a big deal to sin so much that it corrupts us and we just start to say, ah, it's not a big deal, which moves and cascades and builds over time. And all of a sudden, your it's not a big deal lands you in my office asking the question, Jason, what happened? It all starts somewhere. When we ever play or think sin or going not God's way is ever, it's not a big deal, then you don't understand Yahweh. Because Yahweh says my way is a big deal. 
and my way is better than your way. So we have this tension point in our own spiritual lives where we want to, it's a not a big deal, everything we can to try to make ourselves feel better and think God's cool with it. God's not cool with it because he had to have his son die for it. If my son had to die for something you're doing, let's say I hold it to pretty high regard. That's Yahweh's view. And so these young men in the middle of this culture didn't say it's not a big deal. They said, it is a big deal. I'd rather die than ever disrespect the Lord God Almighty, even in the small things. What an intense start to Daniel. What an amazing group of young men that we see this. Because if we are going to be completely honest, right now in our culture, everything it feels is not God's way. It feels every time I turn on the news, something else is being rammed down my throat that I'm supposed to believe in, go towards, uh, put my money into, invest my time. They're telling me this is the better way. But then I read my Bible and say, but the God's way says this. And so we live in a culture of tension, not like Daniel, but isn't it getting, feeling like it's getting pretty close here, my friends? That the tension here is like, I'm supposed to worship God and say, Jesus Christ, you are the only way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by you. But I turn on some televangelist who tells me that there's lots of ways to get to heaven, just be a good person, and give me $50 and you get a prayer hanky in the mail. What's happening? What is happening? Why are we so far from the truth of God's word? And why are we so afraid that God's way isn't the right way? Well, this is what happens when we say it's no big deal. Over time, no big deals become a cascade of a really big deal. And that really big deal then moves us to saying, sin, it's okay. God forgives me anyway. Friends, this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're forgiven from your past. You're forgiven for right now how you're sinning. You're forgiven for what you're going to do in the future. It is forgiven. But our God loves us too much to keep us here. Our God loves us too much to say, just keep sinning. Our God says, friends, my children, don't sin. It will kill and destroy you. And so little Daniel, we've got an 11, 13, maybe he's 20. You've got a young man up here preaching to us all of these years later saying, hey, guys, don't sin. Don't compromise. I'm going to say that again. Don't compromise. Culture is going to ask us to go different directions. Don't compromise. Cultures are always changing. Don't compromise. His culture was terrible. Don't compromise. I don't know what next year is going to look like. If it's been anything like the last three, I'm just going to close my eyes and hang on. Don't compromise. Stand firm in the way of God no matter what. And we're going to find out as we dig more into this that there's a whole lot of they should have probably stepped out and just said it's no big deal. We're going to find out in the book of Daniel as this narrative continues to roll on that if they just would have said it's no big deal, their lives would have been potentially a lot better. We're going to find out that they are going to have to face death multiple times because they will not bow down and do what everyone is saying they're supposed to do. He says no. We talk about Mosaic, how we're disciple-making discipleship. And this, my friends, 
is Discipleship 101. You want to disciple somebody. You want to be a follower of Jesus. He says this, if you love me, you obey my commands. If you love me, you obey me, period. Because in other words, God is much smarter than us because he made you. He knows how you're designed. If you love me, obey me because I'm not making your life worse. I'm protecting you from how terrible life is. If you love me, obey my commands. And so we look at that idea. If I love God and I obey his commands. Now, my discipleship, if I'm a disciple, I'm going out and sharing the good news that we're forgiven for all of our sins. And if we love Christ, we obey his commands. And I'm not going to compromise. Friends, think of how many times you were tempted to compromise this week. How many conversations, online tweets, emails, things that were on television. It doesn't matter. All that stuff doesn't matter of what it is. I'm saying this to you. What matters is that we cannot compromise. This movie is ramping up. And so these young men now say, we're not going to eat this stuff. And we're going to eat what we know we can eat. And of all the foods you have here, we'll just eat vegetables and the Reese's peanut butter cups. We'll take those too. So they start eating vegetables. And for 10 days, he says this, test us. Test us and see if we are not as strong or stronger. So, you know, in our modern terms, they went like on a 10-day cleanse. That's a really good idea. You should, that's good for you, your body, you know, lots of water, eat vegetables. I think you'll feel better too. But 10 days, they come out and they are strong and they are feeling good. And they are like, okay, well, you know what, guys, you can just keep eating what you want because the end result is we just want you to be strong for the king. So eat what you want, that's fine. But this story is going to start cascading. Because now they can eat what they want, but now this king, as we move on to the next chapters, is going to start asking a lot more than just eating certain foods of his. He's saying, either you bow your knee to me or you're going to be dead. And friends, how many times in our lives does that tension come into our own lives of bow our knees? Bow our knee to something we don't believe in. Bow our knee into a way that's not for God. Just, all you have to do is just compromise. Friends, don't do it. Daniel gives us such a beautiful picture in this first chapter that in unpredictable times, when it feels like all of the world is crazy, God is in control. Even now, I mean, we thought 2022 is our year. Uh, Nick fell off a ladder this week, um, literally fell off a ladder. Ask him about it. And we said, 2022 is our year. And then I came in and Nick is on the ground, eh, eh, like fell off a ladder here at Mosaic. 2022 is our year. You know, I don't know if 2022 is our year. It could get worse. But is God still in control? Is God still in control when all the chaos and all the drama, finances are going through the roof, inflation's going up? How much for a, a gallon of gas is going on right now? How much for a pound of ham? I can't even buy ham now and not spend 10 bucks. What is happening? God's in control. Because when we take the, the idea of Daniel where he says, I will follow your way, God. What do I have to worry if God is in control? In the midst of chaos, God is in control. This is meant to encourage you today, but also spark you, my friends, if this is a new thought for you. The way of God is so important. It's so much better. It doesn't give you a better life or give you lots of money. Obviously, look at us. What it does do is it puts you in line with how you were created, and that is good. The way of God is better, and God is in control. 
So the word of the day as you're just processing this, do I compromise? Just a little things. It's not a big deal. Just a little bit of meat. It's okay. It, oh, kind of. Well, maybe it wasn't sacrificed to an idol. Can I just have a piece of bacon? Is God going to smite me if I eat bacon? None of those questions we see here. We see four men with their life on the line say, I will not compromise. And God provided once again. Friend, in our day and age, I hopefully this book and this series is going to encourage you that the sovereign God is control of all things, and our God Almighty is providing for his people. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.